Good morning, ladies. I'm so glad to be with you in this venue through uh, online media, and I'm so glad that we can have this opportunity to talk about God's Word together. We're going to begin chapter 1 of Ruth, and I'm going to begin by reading verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. There was a famine in the land. A famine. And this begins the book of Ruth. And this famine in the land, in a sense, was more than just a physical famine. It was a time of famine in other areas of life, especially in the life of Naomi. So as we begin this study of Ruth 1, we want to see how God uses this historical narrative, a close-up in the lives of a few of his people, to speak truth about himself to us. We want to see how his work in her life and Ruth's, even through famine, can give us hope and encouragement. And we want to see and beware of the temptations with which we may struggle in these tough days when we experience famine all around us. We need to see that God's ways and plan are not our ways, that he is always up to something for good. So let's get started. Let's have prayer. Father, I thank you that your word is relevant. It was relevant years ago, and it's relevant today. And I thank you that you recorded it for us so that we could have hope and encouragement, so that we could know who you are and what you're like and how you work. And Lord, I pray that today it would be food for our soul, light for our way, and hope for tomorrow. I thank you that you are up to something, and we trust you with that, Lord, by faith, knowing that you are a good God. And we pray this in your glorious name. Amen. The days in Bethlehem were tough. There was a famine, a physical famine. And food was scarce and people were surely frightened. Elimelech, from the tribe of Judah, from a town called Bethlehem, made a decision to move his wife and two sons from Bethlehem to Moab, where food was there and plentiful. And at first glance, that seems like a logical choice, go where the food is. But understanding Israel's relationship with Moab adds a significant detail to this story. The whole Moabite nation had its roots in an incestuous relationship between Lot and his firstborn daughter a disgraceful act for any people. And in your homework, you read about that in Genesis 19. Moab was a nation that refused to share food or even water with the children of God when they came out of Egypt and needed provisions. As a result, God cursed them. And the people of God were told not even to seek peace or prosperity for them. The Moabites were not allowed to enter the assembly of God for at least 10 generations. And on at least one occasion, 
the Moabites enticed the Israelites to worship and sacrifice to the Moabite gods. And Israel succumbed to that temptation. Moab so feared and hated the children of Israel that they hired a priest to try to curse them. God intervened and kept that wicked priest from cursing them. These are the people, and this is the region where Elimelech chose to move. Now, this appeared to be an act of faith on his part, and that's pretty ironic for a man who was named God is King. In addition, his two sons would be growing up in an area where there would be no selection for potential wives who were of God's people, at least slim, if none. Elimelech must have forgotten that God is king even in physical resources. The culture of the age in which Elimelech and Naomi lived was one where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The passage begins with the phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. And when you look at the book of Judges, you can see that that was because there was no king in Israel. The people did not view God as their king, and therefore every man lived as he wanted. The book of Judges chronicles that time of life in Israel. And that thinking would only be magnified in the land of Moab, which worshipped other gods and did not believe in the one true God. So Elimelech's choice to move to Moab made obedience to God's command more challenging, especially when it came to God's command about marrying one of his own people. Choosing, as God had commanded, was practically impossible in this heathen land. This place, Moab, may have had physical food, but the culture was devoid of any concern about God's ways. So in a sense, Elimelech, Naomi, and the two sons lived in a time of a cultural famine. They forgot that God was the lawgiver, that obedience is always key despite the culture. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. While there, Elimelech died, and Naomi became a widow. Her hopes for provision and protection would now be shifted from her husband to the prospect of grandchildren to care for her. The sons grew older, became of marrying age, and they selected Moabite wives, Orpha and and Ruth. Now, this was a violation of God's laws. Somewhere in those 10 years, both sons died, leaving three widows with no clear prospects of how to care for themselves in the days ahead. In a very real sense, They had a famine in their own family life. What were they to do? Naomi had forgotten that God was her father and that he always has a people. 
times looked bleak. Naomi and Ruth may have felt there was no hope, but we see just a glimmer of hope in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. While in the fields of Moab, Naomi just happened to hear that the Lord was at work, providing his people with food back in Bethlehem. Perhaps Naomi remembered what she had known and been taught about Yahweh in her past. She might have remembered that God is the one who provides food, that he is the God of Israel. So she headed home with her two daughters-in-law. Moving on down the road toward Bethlehem, Naomi stopped to instruct her daughters-in-law to go back to their family homes. And we see this in the verses 8 through 15. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord, um, and the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Why would Naomi do this? Why would she encourage them to go home? According to Jewish law and the cultural norms of the time, widows only had a few options. To return to their parents' home where they would be provided for, to remarry, giving the woman a chance to bear children, or to live with their, their sons and grandchildren. Naomi was not a candidate for any of those options. Her parents were probably dead, and surely she was beyond her childbearing years or close, and she had no living sons or grandchildren. But the same was not true of Orphan Ruth, so she appealed to them to return home to their families. At first, Naomi's appeal only produced tears and exclamations of loyalty. Certainly, Naomi must have been a good mother-in-law. But then she elaborated on what a difficult life they might have. This caused Orpah to realize the long-term impact of such a decision, so she kissed Naomi and Ruth and returned to her home in Moab. Ruth, however, became even more committed. With extreme determination, she clung to Ruth and made an oath, one bound by death. And this is what she said. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, 
and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth's vow was more than just a vow to Naomi. She certainly knew the possible ethnic prejudice that she would experience. She was aware she would have few, if any, legal rights. She recognized that her future with an aging widow would be uncertain and difficult. Yet, she must have sensed the call of the Almighty and by faith vowed that he would be her God. She rejected the gods of her own family and nation to embrace Naomi's God even until her own death. Why can we assume that Naomi was a true believer? We see in Naomi in Ruth's vow elements that are signs of salvation, repentance from her life of idolatry, a longing to be with God's people, a denying of ungodliness and worldly desires, with a zeal to follow Yahweh. All these were characteristics you looked at in the cross-references of 2 Corinthians and Titus. Ruth has vowed that Yahweh will be her, her God just as he is Naomi's God. When Naomi realized that Ruth was not going to be deterred, the two traveled on to Bethlehem. And we see them arrive in Bethlehem in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Probably, uh, excuse me, upon their arrival, the whole town reacts. In fact, Scripture says they were stirred. Why? Why, were, why was there this uproar? Well, probably, as with all situations in a crowd, the people reacted in various ways. Those who had known her before her exodus to Moab probably thought they'd never see her again or that she had died. Some noticed the change in sweet Naomi from her past and felt surprise and maybe compassion that she'd had such a hard life. Others probably treated her with scorn, silently reprimanding her for leaving and not sharing in the affliction of God's people. Surely, several were shocked that she would bring a Moabitess back with her. Others probably didn't know her at all and asked questions that others still others answered. This is the mentality of a group of women in most any age, so I imagine all of those thoughts were there. In any case, Naomi and Ruth certainly felt the effects of a social famine, one where she and Ruth didn't quite fit in. She might have forgotten, and probably did at this point in her life, that God is our God, and we are his people. That was her true identity. But most of all, we see Naomi's perspective of where she is spiritually. Her words to the women in her community were one of bitter, probably angry thoughts of God. We, see this, we saw this sentiment in verse 13 where she said to her daughters-in-law, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And now in verses 20 and 21, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? 
when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Naomi feels that she's in a spiritual famine. At this moment, her thoughts about God are skewed by her perception of her circumstances. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Naomi because we see signs that she recognized even in her hopelessness that God was the one in charge. She recognized while in Moab that God had food back in Bethlehem that he was providing. She recognized um, even her statements that God had made her a widow and that whether she came back full or empty, this was the act of God. She even saw that God was the one who had brought her back to Bethlehem. What Naomi does not realize is that God is at work. Verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The beginning of barley harvest. Do you feel that little thread of hope? The Lord of the harvest is doing something. He is orchestrating his own good plans, but Naomi just doesn't see it yet. And so we're left hanging at the end of chapter one, just waiting to see what will happen to Naomi and Ruth. So this is where I want to pause to reflect on what the Lord wants to show us about himself from this story so that we may have hope and encouragement. I want us to beware of the temptations with which we may struggle in these tough days when we feel a sort of famine around us. Because in famine, in hard times, our first response often is to feel that God's been too hard on us, that he's punishing us, that he is not good. Right now, here in March of 2020, We are experiencing our own form of a little physical famine, although it's nothing like Ruth and Naomi knew. Food is not readily available at every moment as we'd like it to be. And for many of us, we are tempted not to trust God for his provision. We might question his goodness and we might try to figure how to work it out in fear and panic. Like Naomi, we'll see, God is still king over all things. He is our provider. We, like Naomi and Ruth, live in a life of cultural famine. The time in which we live has the same philosophy as it did in that day. Have it your way. If it feels good, do it. Well, that may be wrong for you, but don't judge me because it's not wrong for me. That thinking is a picture of our culture. And in this cultural famine, our temptation is not to heed God's commands. Yet, he is still the lawgiver, and obedience to his ways is always the path to joy. Perhaps some of you feel like you're in a familial type of famine. You're, you feel like you're, maybe you're single or widowed. Maybe you are... Um, far away from extended family, or that you're raising a family with a lost husband. Your temptation may be to feel like Naomi, that you are alone and life is hopeless. Remember that he is your heavenly father. He always has a people 
a body of believers, and he equips them to serve one another. At times we may feel kind of like we're in a social famine where we don't fit in, where we're outcast, and our temptation is to find our identity in man's view of us. Because he is our God and we are his people, there will be times we're going to feel like aliens, probably a lot. We cannot depend on man's views of us to define who we are and who we're called to be. He is our God and we are his people. And that is all we need to know ultimately. But most importantly, some of you may feel right now you're in a spiritual famine that you don't see God's working, and you're afraid he's lost control. And the temptation is to blame God for not being good and to grow bitter. In reading Naomi and Ruth's story, we can be reminded that God is still the Lord of the harvest. He is at work doing perfectly what he wills according to his divine plan. And we need to remind ourselves that God's ways and plans are not our ways. That he is always up to something for good. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Our God is sovereignly in control, even in times of famine.